we left off with this idea of we left off with this idea of cognitive dissonance. Okay, the idea that uh, something happens when what you've been taught, what you believe, whether it be an issue of faith for those of you who are religious, or whether it be an issue of uh, reality. I mean, some people for a while were taught that the earth was flat, and then one day somebody came along and said, no, the earth was round. That's not a religious thing, although it has religious implications. But what do you do when everything that you've been taught, everything that you've learned, comes, uh, runs smack into reality, or, or an experience that differs from what you've been taught? And we talked about last week uh, how some people <clears throat> will deny the experience. We'll say, I know what it looks like, I know it looks like that's what happened, but that's not what happened. God has a plan, or this is a part of God's plan, or something must have uh, deviated from the way things were supposed to be. And they find a way to rationalize or distance themselves <coughs> me, from the experience. Other people will embrace the experience, and will turn around and say, I've been liked, and I need to rethink everything that I've ever been taught. Okay. And this is certainly what happened uh, when the Babylonians came and knocked down the temple. And they exiled the people, the city that was supposed to be inviolable, the city that's supposed to be uh, protected by the hand of God himself, is now destroyed. All the, all the nobles, all the peoples are taken off into exile, and uh, the temple's gone, and the Davidic kings, remember 2 Samuel 7, they had this promise that the king of David will always sit on the throne forever and ever, and that's gone as well. You know, what do you do? And we talked about what people do a lot of times is what we do today, right? We sing. Okay, and so we looked at some of these things called lamentations. Okay, and there's only five chapters of lamentations, and they're really sad poems. And if you go through and read the book of lamentations, it's basically modern blues, right? About Jerusalem. Specifically about God, what did you do? Why did you do this? You broke your promise. Right? Or at least you, you appear to have broken your promise. Lamentations are tough to read for people who think, no, God always keeps his promises. God always does what he says. He always comes through. Because at this point in history, he did it. At least it appeared he did it. And the Jews, the people who would become the Jews, the Israelites, began to rationalize what this promise meant in light of the new experience. Okay? And we also have Psalms. Right? Psalms that talk about how long will you be angry forever? Obviously, God's upset at something, right? I told you about uh, what I used to tell my daughter when it was raining. I told her that was God crying. And when she asked God why God was crying, I told her it was because it's probably something she did. Right? This, this idea. The, the idea is if something's wrong, why are you upset with us? Right? Why? 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 And you just keep asking, why did she break up with me? Or why did he break up with me? Why? I think I'm going to go over there and demand an answer. No. Maybe I'll call her. No. Maybe I'll have a friend. No. You know, and you begin to ask this question. Am I the only one that's pathetic enough to have gone through this, right? <laughs> you just keep asking yourself, why didn't I get that job? I thought it was going to be. Why did my parents do that to me? Why did my parents die? Why did she leave? Why? I want an answer. If I can only have an answer, then I'll have some closure, right? And that's where they are. That's where, that's where these people find themselves. What happened to what we thought? And what do we do now? I, I, I should have that clip. Maybe I'll splice it into the to the video. But that clip uh, in Forrest Gump, you know, you know this thing where they're all jogging? 
and he's jogging, he's got the big, good uh, Galpinakis beard going, right? And he's jogging, and all of a sudden he just stops, and he says, I think I'll go home now, right? And he just takes off. And what's the line? What's that guy say? Nobody, am I that old? Nobody wants Forrest Gump anymore? The guy says what? What are we supposed to do now? Because everything they knew was just jogging after this guy, right? He, was, he knew something. Man, that guy knows where it's at, right? And now he leaves, and they go, what now? And that's what's going on in Israel. Okay, they're in exile, and they don't know what to do. So they write songs. And what you see in some of these songs, and what you see in Lamentations, uh, is similar. It basically is the Jerusalem version of what you see in the book of Job. We won't talk about Job in this class. But Job is one massive, very difficult to read argument against God. And, and again, it's for another class, but Job basically, not, not dealing with Jerusalem, but deals another thing with the fairness of God. And he, and he comes to the decision that God has wronged him. And he calls God every name in the book. And he wants to sue God. Okay? But it's another, that's another class. But you get these things. You see some of the Psalms, you see the Lamentations, you see Job. These are complaints against God. What it means for us and what it means for them is that this promise, this 2 Samuel 7 promise that God made, needs to be redefined. Now, granted, there were some people who just rejected it, who said, this God, if he's going to do this to us, if he's going to allow us to be conquered, must not be that strong. Thus, he must not be worth uh, worshiping. Okay? So they left him. They said, I'm not going to worship this God. I'll worship some other God. The conquering god of the day today must be the Assyrian god, the Babylonian god. We'll, we'll worship that god, because obviously they can be our god. Right? So some of them would actually reject God, the Hebrew god, and worship someone else. But those who remained faithful to the old system had to do what? Right? They had to redefine everything that they had been taught. And the way that we see in, in the text of this, that the promise is redefined is by adding conditions to it. This is what we left off last week. So the promise forever, right, that, that David's going to, uh, the son of David will sit on the throne, is conditionalized. That is, there's evidence within the Hebrew text that somebody, remember we talked about how uh, after the exile they came back and redacted. So some of the things that were written before the exile were redacted to make sure they made a little more sense and they, they, they weren't as problematic. And other things were just written after the exile. They go back in there and they add conditions. Basically, I promise you I have a son on the throne forever as long as you keep my commandments. Then, by adding that condition in there, when you read the promise, right, it says what? Oh, we have a reason that God left us. We must not have obeyed his Torah. We must not have obeyed his commandments. We must have done something wrong. Okay? And that's what we begin to see happen. Okay? And I'll show you some evidence of that. So that's, that's how they deal with the promise to David. The temple becomes a bigger issue. That's what we're concerned with with, with this class. So we'll look at that a little bit. What we begin to see is something called name theology. And remind me to put a question about name theology on the exam. Because name theology appears to have risen out of exile. Okay? For instance, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Remember, Deuteronomy is actually written or redacted after... Um, after... Uh, the exile, or during the exile. Any time? Yeah. Ah. Um, Deuteronomy is either written during or after, it's either written 
or at least redacted after the returning or after the exile. And so what we should see here should be different from some, some of the other earlier texts. Even though Deuteronomy comes before Samuel and Kings in the Bible, in order of books, it was written after. Okay. Um, and that's another class, and we can, I can, if you want to come see me in office hours, I can take you through the process. But just take my word for it for now. I'll, I'll show you some evidence of the same. For instance, in Deuteronomy 12.5, you shall see the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes and his habitation to put his name there. Not for God to dwell there, but for his name to be put. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean? What does it mean to, for God to put his name somewhere? Right, look at 2 Kings 21.7. The Lord said to David and to his son Solomon, in this house, referring to the temple in Jerusalem, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name there forever. Not I will dwell there forever, but I'll put my name there forever. So what does that mean? Let me ask you. Yeah. Okay, so it's his territory. What else? Yeah. Would it also be destroyed? It's not like God's there. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, this is a very good point. One of the things is not only is he marking it, he could have marked it by living there, or he could have marked it by just having the name there, right? But if it gets destroyed, what does that mean? God, God wasn't destroyed, right? If God lives in the temple, right, like the Ark of the Covenant, and the thing gets destroyed, you say, uh-oh, God's house just burned down. But if you're working from a, if you're working from after the fact, if you're trying to rationalize what happened, then if you can say, no, 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 that's not where God lived. Not a house for God, even though 2 Samuel 7 had that debate, right? They're not going to build me a house. We'll look at that in a second. But it's not, it's not where he lives, it's where his name resides. It's where he's worshipped. So when you burn down a church, when, when, a, when one of these fires comes before I live in Mountain Canyon, right? Liberty Canyon, Mountain Canyon. So one of those fires comes before and burns down a church, the church doesn't go, ah, they burned down God's house. He must be dead. No, no, that's just where he was worshipped. Okay? And name theology allows for that. Okay? Let's look at another one. Right? First Kings 9. The Lord said to Solomon, I consecrate the Remember the great prayer after they built the temple, Solomon gives this dedicatory prayer, the ribbon penning ceremony. I consecrate this house which you have built here, and I set my name there forever. Not and I will dwell here forever, but I set my name there forever. And that's a, that's an important thing to distinguish, right? My eyes and my heart shall ever be there, but not my presence. I'll hear when you talk to there, and I'll, and I'll listen. Remember, in the ancient world, right? Um, when, you know, let's do it this way. In today's world, when we talk about um, uh, I really know something, right? When you know something, what do we point to? Our head, right? We know with our head. But when we say, oh, come on, have a heart, when we talk about compassion, we talk about what? I have a feeling, and it's a... Uh, Perfect. Yeah, I got it. Let me let me start that again. In the modern in the modern world, when we know something, we point to our head. We know the brains up there. So I know something. But when we're talking about compassion, we say, "Oh, come on, have a heart." Okay. So compassion resides in the heart, linguistically, and knowledge resides in the ancient world. It was a little different. The heart was the seat of knowledge. Right. So my heart is with me. I'm listening to you. I'm I'm paying attention to you. And your um, and your emotions resided in your guts. Spunk lies. It's this really fun word in Greek, right? It's the idea is, you know, I have a gut feeling. 
So when it talks about uh, uh, my heart and my eyes will be there, I will see you, and I will, I will know you, I will, I will hear you, I will listen to you, okay? It's the same idea with worship the Lord your God with all your, right, there's this idea of your heart and your mind, it's all, it's all a, you do it with everything, right? Um, to Solomon's son I will give one tribe, so that there will be a lamp for my servant David, right, forever before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to set my name. Again, look at 2 Kings 21. King Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, actually wasn't as good as Hezekiah, right? So he built altars for other gods in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, I will set my name in Jerusalem. So are you seeing how this differs from, let's say, something else, right? Again, Deuteronomy. What did he say? You must destroy all the sites of all the nations you dispossess. Da, 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 da. Do not worship the Lord your God in this manner with all those poles and things, right? But look only to the site that the Lord your God will choose amidst all the tribes uh, as his habitation to set his name there. Now, this is exilic. Right? I, I mentioned that Deuteronomy was written or redacted after the exile or during the exile. Okay. It doesn't just match Hezekiah's reforms a lot. I mean, it's another class. It's another class. And for those of you saying, no, 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 Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Moses wrote Deuteronomy. Um, that's, that's a whole other lecture. We can do that some other time. Uh, but I would ask you to read the end of Deuteronomy where it tells about Moses dying. I'm, I'm guessing that Moses didn't write it that. <laughs> Moses did not write the Pentateuch, JBDP, Documentary Hypothesis. Like I said, it's an intro to Hebrew Bible class. But I teach it, but I can't do it here today. Um, why do I say it's exilic? Because um, in 2 Samuel 7, we have that original promise, right? Go and tell my servant David, the Lord says, are you the one to build me a house to live in? Right? The reason I would argue that this is pre-exilic is because it's problematic. Why is it problematic? Because it talks about God actually living in a house. Right? Which means when that house is later destroyed, we have a problem, right? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people from Israel from Egypt. But I have been moving about in a tent at a tabernacle. And wherever I have moved about, it's not talking about his name. It's talking about God physically being in the presence with what? What's the thing moving about where God's presence resides? God in the covenant, right? So there's obviously this theology, this idea that God did reside somewhere with the ark. And once I built the temple, he resided with the temple, right? I have moved about. Why have you not built me a house uh, out of cedar? I've never asked that question. So we know that in some of the earlier texts where God talks about actually residing in a house, or in, in uh, a thing, but that's probably earlier, right? Because after that place gets destroyed, now we have a problem. So you get texts like 2 Kings and you get texts like Deuteronomy that says, no, 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 that's where I was going to put my name. And that way you have a problem. God lives up there, and his name is worshipped there. That's called name theology. Any questions about that? Yes? Um, was King, first king written after the exile? Or was it just after the There are portions of it, I would argue, that are, are pretty exilic. But I think uh, the, the thing is composition versus redaction. You guys know what redaction is? Redaction is what you just did to your papers. You wrote something, and then later, two, a week later, two weeks later, you took what you wrote, and you fixed it up, and you added stuff to it, you took things out, and then you, re you redacted it, and then you handed that final paper in. 
the Bible was written in much of the same way, except it probably had many redactions, at least two big ones in Deuteronomy. So the stuff may have been written early, but it came down to someone else who probably marked it up, who handed it in, took things out, and added things to it, things what, like that. What other proof is there, like, for that it was uh, redacted back in 2000, or like, it seems like it was like um, there, there are, there, there's an entire class called Intro to the Hebrew Bible, and it's, it's Fundamental biblical criticism that basically talks about the dual redaction, the double redaction of Deuteronomy, or the single redaction. There's scholars will debate this idea. Was Deuteronomy written? Fundamentalists would say it was written by Moses, you know, a long, long time ago. Don't argue it. And then other scholars would say, no, it was obviously he didn't write his own death, and there's other problems with the text. So um, it was probably written, and then somebody came along and redacted it. And other scholars came along and said, no, there were two distinct redactions going on. So the argument, the truth is, we're not sure, but we know that it's been redacted. We know that it's been marked up. And the, the redactions appear to have taken place after the exile for the reasons I said here. Otherwise, you have this problem. The temple was destroyed, and God promised to dwell there forever. Well, now that the temple's gone, now what do you do? So in an attempt to rethink this promise, they conditionalized it by going to the promise to David and saying, if you keep my commandments. And in Deuteronomy saying, don't worship these other gods, or, or, I'll, or I'll leave you. It's a conditional promise, right? And doing name theology. Like that's not where God lives. That's where his name is worshipped. Okay, so that's what that's one of the ways to cope with, right? How do we cope with death today, right? I mean, some of you obviously believe when you die, you die, right? You die, and you're dead. That's happens. Animals die, and they, they die, and humans die, and they die. But other people believe what? They die, and their spirit goes to heaven or to hell. Or they're still dead, but one day they will be raised from the dead. Why do people believe that? Why do people believe in an afterlife? It's more comforting why? <laughs> can we live forever? I mean, as humans, can we? I mean, maybe some people think we do. I would say no, we're going to die. But if, we, if our spirit can live on, or if we can come back from the dead, all of a sudden we can live forever. We can be immortal. And that's what we're all seeking for. You know, I, I've argued several times that religion, life, religion is, is about basically sex and death. Basically trying to live, trying to, trying to make as many of yourselves as you can to live on, to live on, and the way that you do that is through sex, and then to overcome death. We all want to live forever. Right? Or we want a fulfilling life that, that doesn't, you know, if you, if you come to that point in life where it's like, this is no fun, I think I'll end it. There's always that part of you that says, no, 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 there's, there's another day. Right? Another day. So we're always trying to look for that, that next day, that eternal life. And one of the ways you do that is with an afterlife or a resurrection, which has been in, in many religions. All that is is to say, it's an attempt to, to deal with reality. We're going to die. All of us are going to die. So what do we do about that? systems of faith say, well, I'll tell you what you do about it. You, and then you follow whatever doctrine each system of faith says. It's a way to overcome death. Just like this is a way to overcome the fact that a promise was broken, or appears to have been broken. So we'll worship his name instead of a place where God lives. Okay? Questions? After the fall, after the death, uh, we, we looked at this slide already, right? You see this one? Um, there was complete destruction and economic devastation, right? 
uh, all the all the core people, uh, all the nobles went to Babylon, were exiled. Um, all of the, the economic stuff, basically, all the people who betrayed, all the people with any money, all the people with any, any influence went to Babylon. Um, only the poorest people left, which would cause problems later, which we'll have to talk about in a different class. But basically, the captain of the guard leaves some of the poorest people in the land to be vine dressers and tillers of the soil. They left the people who were least educated to work to be the slaves, basically, to work the fields. Everyone else got, so Jerusalem essentially ceases to uh, function as, a, as a, an independent city. They also tore down the walls. So those people who were there wouldn't rebel again. Okay? And then you have to ask these questions. What do you do about David? We had 2 Samuel 7, 16. Right? Your sons will rule forever. That's, that's over with, right? You had 2 Samuel 7, 10. I will give you a place, this eternal place. It's gone. It's been burned down, right? God will defend and save this city. Well, no, he won't. The Babylonians knocked it down. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This, remember that inviability that we got from Hezekiah's defending himself against, against the Sennacherib? The Babylonians came and took it later. This is the idea of cognitive distance. Okay. What do you do? So from this point forward in the class, Persian period, Hellenistic period, uh, the, all the Herodian period, all the way down through, we're going to look at attempts, what, what different groups have done to reinterpret these promises so that Jerusalem still is that legendary city of God where God resides, keeps his promises. Um, that's basically where we go from here on out. But in order to set that foundation for the second half of class, we've got to have all the stuff we have up until now. Let me give you uh, some archaeological evidence. Um, in Babylon, 290 tablets excavated near the Ishtar Gate. Right? Ishtar Gate is a gate in Babylon. Um, in the 1930s, uh, 200 of these uh, tablets were excavated. Um, the Ishtar Gate was constructed about 575 BC by Nebuchadnezzar II on the north side of the city. And four of these tablets that were discovered in these excavations right over here in Babylon, the Southern Palace, um, mention Judean royal family names. So again, I don't like to make, I don't just rely on the claims of the Bible. I like to try to show you some archaeological evidence that confirms some of the claims that the Bible made. So by the way, if you haven't seen Ishtar Gate, there's pieces of it all over the world. Right? And this is one of the problems with archaeology, is you know, who owns the Ishtar Gate? Right? The Babylonians built it, but they're gone. So does modern Iraq get it since it's in Babylon? Or you know, th this one I think is this this picture here is in Berlin. Berlin reconstructed um, <coughs> there's a dragon uh, in Detroit. Uh, in Sweden, there's some. The Louvre has some. In Toronto, there's pieces of this. The Oriental Institute in Chicago has some. The Rhode Island School of Design and the Harvard of Art Schools, right, uh, has this. Yale. It's all over the world. So this is it's a kind of thing. But who owns archaeological artifacts? That's a big question. Is the museum who has it? Who has it because it was taken by somebody 100 years ago? Shouldn't the Elgin Marbles? You guys know what the Elgin Marbles are? 
in the British Museum? Should they go back to Greece so they can go back out on the structure in Greece? Or do the Brits get to keep it? This is a big thing. If you want to go into uh, antiquity and law, this is a good area. Who owns the past? It's a whole, it's a whole uh, other area of study. But I digress. Um, we had this uh, Herodotus, who in 450 BC was a, uh, a historian, said, in addition to its size, Babylon uh, surpassed in splendor any city in the known world. This was the center of the earth. Babylon was that big of a deal. They, kind of, they came in and wiped out Jerusalem. That's how powerful they were. And, and everyone basically agreed, right? We talked about this, this tablet, the mention of the Judean families, right? Here you go. Now, what does the tablet say? Uh, it says something to the equivalent of six liters of oil for Jehoiakim, king of the land of Judah, two and a half liters uh, for the five princes of Judah, four liters for the eight men of Judah, etc., etc., etc. Why is that significant? All it is is it appears to be some kind of allowance or ration for Jewish king, some kind of Jewish king or Jewish prince living in Babylon at the time. Okay? And it's important because after the destruction and the exile, in 2 Kings 25, that's the Bible, right? We have this verse. In the 37th year of the exile of King Jehoiakim of Judah, in the 12th month of the 27th day of the month, King, and this is really his name, Abiel Merodach, like Eagle Canadian, right? Uh, of Babylon in the year that he began, uh, that he began to reign, released King Jehoiakim of Judah from prison. For his allowance, a regular allowance was given by him, uh, him by the king, a portion every day as long as he lived. So we have the text saying, yes, he surrendered the city, he gave up Jerusalem, for that he, his life was spared, and he got to go in exile and still be the king of his little people, the king of Judah, right? As long as he kept those guys in check, and they didn't rebel, and they were good little foreign citizens, then he got an allowance. And you see here a tablet that appears to be confirming this part of the Bible. The Bible said that he was a king in exile in Babylon, receiving an allowance. And now you have a tablet from Babylon talking about an allowance. So there is some external corroboration for the claim made in the biblical text. <coughs> uh, you also have um, uh, archives of Jewish uh, and Babylonian businessmen in this uh, in an archive of letters that was found. Really? You don't see that. I've been changing all this time, and you never see that. Okay. Um, called the Marashan family. Basically, it was a bunch of merchant bankers who controlled vast commercial and agricultural interests um, in that period. We have some lists of Jewish captives from these documents as well. So I show you this to basically point out that there appears to be corroborating evidence from Babylon that, that says, you know, these guys really were exiled. And they really did live in captivity, which is nice for those of you who like to prove that the Bible. Here's at least some evidence that this portion of it appears to have been historical. Yes. Is there a lot of archaeological evidence suggesting that Jerusalem was destroyed? Yeah. I mean, the, the mere fact that there's no evidence.
sense of Solomon's temple on the Temple Mount speaks to that. And the question was, isn't there a lot of archaeological evidence for the destruction of Jerusalem? Absolutely. Right? And, and we don't have evidence for a temple. We have other evidence. We talked about the Megiddo for a 10th century consolidation of a, of a political unit in Jerusalem that was fortifying cities around Jerusalem. But some people dispute that evidence which we, while we talked about that David and Solomon exist. But yeah, there's lots of evidence that Jerusalem was destroyed. From here, what we do is we, we talked about the exilic period. We're going to come back uh, and talk about the Persian period and then move down into um, the Hellenistic period, the Greek period. Does anyone have any questions about anything we've covered up until this point? I know I kind of, uh, and I go very fast, and that's why I do videotape things. So is anybody making use of that, going back and watching it? I'm starting to put some on YouTube for some of the YouTube, for some of the key things. Um, any questions about anything we did? Let's start here today in today's lecture. If you have any questions about the order in which the books were written or who wrote what, uh, you're always welcome to come by my office or you can take an intro to, to biblical criticism here at UCLA or elsewhere. Any freshman level uh, intro to biblical criticism will, will walk you through uh, the different sources that are used to make up the Hebrew Bible. Yes? Um, so the thing where it talks about God giving, like telling the people to destroy all the pillars of other gods, um, haven't you mentioned Boaz and Yaakov possibly representing him in Ashtarach? Yeah. The, yeah, the, 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 the text, the way that we have the Bible today speaks very clearly, right? You don't worship other gods. You only worship the one God because there is only one God, right? At least that's the second part of the Bible, the way it comes to us, right? Let me, let me put it this way. What does it mean to be monotheistic? Raise your hand if you think being monotheistic means there's only one God. Only one God. Okay. Now, raise your hand if you think that being monotheistic means you only worship one God, but there are actually lots of gods that exist. Anyone? Not too many. Okay. Um, that's the big question. What does it mean to, right? Um, another word is henotheism. Henotheism. Henotheism is technically defined as um, the worship of one god while acknowledging there are other gods. And some religions do this. Uh, or monolatry. Monolatry, like idolatry. Monolatry means you worship one god, but acknowledge that there are other gods that exist. And there's evidence of this, right? In the Bible, one of the Ten Commandments is what? Worship me above all other gods. Right? Or don't worship other gods. What other gods? <laughs> right? Do not worship. And we name them Baal and Marduk and all these other Asherah and all these. We know their names. Okay? The reason that we mention Boaz and Yahim, the two, the two pillars, is because despite the fact that in our redacted Bible we have this very strong, especially from the prophets, you only worship God. Hebrew God, Yahweh, the Hebrew God. Um, uh, it appears that the reason that the prophets are saying that so often is because they weren't doing it, right? If you see signs that say no skateboarding, no skateboarding, no skateboarding, no skateboarding, no skateboarding, odds are what's going on there? Skateboarding, right? 
or if you see a hey, speed limit, whatever it is now, I don't pay attention. Uh, 65 <laughs> <laughs> if, if you see a bunch of speed limit signs, it's probably people are speeding there, right? So that's the idea. The fact that we see so many prohibitions against worshiping multiple gods in the Bible meant that they did it. And in fact, we have evidence of uh, 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 carving on a piece of ivory or painting on a piece of ivory uh, from Kuntilat Ashrud. Kuntilat Ashrud um, talks about and has an inscription and has a picture of the two gods. And it says, may you be blessed by Yahweh and his Asherah. So we have archaeological evidence that somebody was worshiping, worshiping and, and revering the both. Which we would expect, if you think about it, because the prophets were saying, don't do that. And if they're saying, don't do it, we should have some evidence that it was being done. The big question for scholars is, at what point did what we know today to be Judaism become monotheistic? My main question was, um, like, because it says that he wanted you to like burn down all the pillars of other gods. Right. So if like part of Boaz and Yakin was the Asherah, would that be against him? Or yeah, we know we know in the Bible because it condemns him for it. Solomon worked, had all these wives from foreign countries who brought with them their foreign gods, and he let them build. Remember the hill of offense, right? Um, he he let them build shrines to them. So Solomon, very pluralistic. No, oh, no, whatever you want to worship, you worship, right? Just just as long as you do what you want, wherever you want to worship, which was condemned by the by the redactors at least of the Bible. You only worship one God. Okay. And we also talked about there was, there seems to have been a transition between Hezekiah in the late eighth century and Josiah in the seventh century, between understanding these shrines as being alternative places to worship <laughs> Yahweh versus uh, idols to foreign gods. Essentially, during the 8th century and Hezekiah's reforms, some of those shrines appeared to have been places to worship Yahweh, the Hebrew God, right? Uh, some of them were obviously idols as well, but there was one that they, there were other ways to worship it. Whereas by the time you read the text about Josiah, it appears to be they were all foreign gods, because obviously there's only one place to worship Yahweh, and that's in Jerusalem. So, but yes, there's lots of evidence. In, in the literature, in the form of combinations, and archaeologically, that these guys were not only worshiping other gods all the way down through the exilic period, uh, but were doing other things that they were prohibited, like child sacrifice. Child sacrifice appears in lots of evidence that appeared, especially early on in, in Israel's history, um, to be practiced. Obviously, some kings did it and were condemned for it, so you have literary evidence. You have the Henry Valley where they said other other kings did it. Um, but you've even got a um, piece of text, and I don't have a slide for it, but Jeff will look it up, um, in Exodus, talking about, um, uh, and all your firstborn, first fruits, and your firstborn belong to me. And then later on, in a redacted uh, version of that same verse, it says, but you can redeem your firstborn with a sacrifice. But in that original text, it just says, all your firstborn belong to me. So it's, it's again, some evidence that maybe they practice child sacrifice, which, which they are also forbidden to do by the time we get to the <coughs> So don't see Judaism as something that God just lowered down from heaven and just said, you know, this is how Islam, when we get to Islam, we'll read this, right? God appears to the prophet, in a, in a, in, you know, the prophet's illiterate, right? He can't read, he can't write, and he, but he picks up and he starts to recite, right? And he just writes down all the things, actually it's right below, all the things that God says. And so the Quran says, basically, this is the verbatim word of God. That's how it passed, that's how it, that's how it uh, conveys itself, or, or sees itself. 
Um, and the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, seems to do that in a little, a little more spaced out there, but it certainly claims that Moses wrote the first five books and things like that. But we know from, from analysis that it was redacted and people went back. And I think if you take Dr. Cooperson's class uh, in, in Islamic studies, you'll see that you have evidence of that in the Quran as well. So, other questions? 